This episode of Everything Sounds is sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code EVSOUNDS. That's EVSOUNDS, E-V-S-O-U-N-D-S. Ignition sequence start. Everything. Everything. Sounds. Sounds. This is Everything Sounds. I'm Craig Shank. I'm... Wow. Good start. (laughs) Thank you. I'm Craig Shank. I'm George Drake Jr. And this is Everything Sounds. We're going into the basement. This is where we keep all of the toys. Come on, right down here. Just watch your step. You can pull that door closed if you like. (laughs) So, uh, this is kind of where it all happens, right here. All of them work. They require coins. They're all filled with music. I've got uh, a few more things back here. This Coca-Cola machine actually is for sale. We can get that out of the way later if we need to. But this uh, this is my domain. This is Barry Bell, spelled B-E-R-R-Y. It's an old family spelling of his. Both his great-grandfather and his great-uncle on his mother's side were B-E-R-R-Y Barrys. And uh, I have siblings uh, that also uh, have names that rhyme with mine. I have a Terry, I have a Sherry, and I have a Carrie. And I'm Barry, so go figure. Barry took us down into his basement for 17 reasons his jukebox collection. Uh, there's like 17 here on the floor. There's one upstairs, and then I have uh, a couple more in the back that are kind of waiting to be repaired and ready to be brought out here onto the floor. That is, if I can find room. He's been collecting jukeboxes for almost 30 years, and it doesn't matter where the jukebox comes from as long as it's mainly original and in good enough shape to be restored. Uh, this is a lot of miles, a lot of phone calls, a lot of interaction with people along the way, and. Uh, so this is kind of the culmination of 25 years of, you know, picking, if you will, and, and finding these relics and preserving them. But his basement doesn't only hold his jukeboxes. The walls are completely filled with neon signs. And if you factor those in with the jukeboxes, Barry's pushing so much power that there's actually a constant hum in his basement. Well, I just uh, threw a breaker a few minutes ago. Uh, I had my neighbor help me build the basement and we, you know, he was kind of an electrician, but there was no way I could anticipate I would have this much stuff plugged in at once. So I throw a breaker every once in a while because I've got so many things plugged in and it's drawing so much current. He grew up in Oklahoma and his family was always involved with music and the media. And that's probably where his hobby came from. I came from a family of... uh, radio announcers and, and television background, and, and I myself was in radio. My father was a uh, uh, weatherman on television, uh, also was a disc jockey, and uh, was an outstanding singer. My brother was uh, also in the radio industry, uh, spent time in Dallas, and was a, a great drummer, uh, musician. And I didn't have any of those skills, so the next closest thing I felt like I could get to was, you know, at least finding uh, machines that that played uh, music. That was about as close to it that I could get. So in the early 1990s, Barry started his collection. 
He hadn't bought a jukebox before, and his budget was tight, so he knew he couldn't afford one with the curved glass because they were too far out of his price range. But he wanted one that you could actually see inside. You could see the records, the dropping of the needle, all of it. That's when he found it. The first one I bought was this machine. This is a uh, 1962 DS-160. It's a, uh, a Seberg. Um, one of the last machines that was made where you could actually see the record play. And uh, uh, that, that's what made it unique. I think that was one of the big things for jukeboxes was being able to see what was happening. So uh, this was the very first one. And his collection took off from there. All right, let's do this. Let's play this one. For many people, at least in my demographic, and I'm 57, uh, this is the jukebox that they visualize. This is the most popular jukebox of all time. It's a 1946 Wurlitzer 1015. They made more of this model than any other. Uh, and it came out right after World War II. You know, it was, a, it was a great time in our country's history. We just won the war, and so people were going back to work. There was just, it was a, a feel-good machine. Now, it still plays the 78s, and I acquired this one from a gentleman in uh, Crested Butte, Colorado and uh, purchased this basically sight unseen. Uh, he actually was going through a divorce, needed some cash, I got a good deal on it, found a gentleman from uh, the Northwest to bring it to me, and uh, it's completely original, works. Uh, so this is, is one of the top uh, machines in my collection, no question about that. This is a 1952 Seberg uh, G, uh, this was one of the first high-fidelity jukeboxes. This actually was the jukebox, if you ever used to watch um, Happy Days, uh, this was the jukebox that he would all, in, in the malt shop, always hit and automatically it would play. And I'm not quite sure how uh, Fonzie was able to do that, but uh, that was kind of his shtick. Now you've got to put a quarter in uh, to actually get a credit. So uh, this one has always been very special to me. This 1957 AMI, uh, this was a company that uh, manufactured machines in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, very unusual. You can see a strong automobile influence with the curved glass, the, the bumper down here, or muffler, some people refer to it as. This is a 200 select machine, and what makes it really, really special is the sound quality. Uh, AMI had some of the best sound engineers in the business. so. Um, uh, this one is, is extremely special. This is another AMI. This came out in 1962. Uh, it's one of those love or hate kind of things. It's so unique. This is the AMI Continental II. Uh, stereo machine. Uh, a lot of space, age, design influence with the bubble top and kind of the radar screen in the back. Um, often, you know, people have said something out of the Jetsons, maybe something like that. Uh, once again, great sound since it's an AMI. And then lastly, I think probably the king of all jukeboxes is the 1956 Wurlitzer 2000, uh, also referred to as the Centennial model. Um, this is a 200 select machine and probably Wurlitzer's finest moment, at least from the mid-50s. So this is, uh, this is one that everybody wants. You get a lot of questions about this one? I do. A lot of inquiries about uh, when you get ready to sell it or what would it take to buy it. Uh, I've had this one an awfully long time. I bought this from a uh, 
retired gentleman in Arkansas. And uh, I've had this in my collection for almost 20 years. So it's been here a long time. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. They have beautiful designs for you to start with and all of the style options you need to create a unique website for you or your business. It all starts at just $8 a month. You can begin a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code EVSOUNDS to get 10% off and show your support for Everything Sounds. And thanks. Before we get too far into jukeboxes, there's one thing that we need to clear up that was actually a huge debate between Craig and I when we were getting the episode together. Jukebox is spelled J-U-K-E, not J-U-T-E, as in Jukebox. <laughs> I thought George was kidding with this. I had never heard of someone thinking of calling it a jute box before George brought it up, but we googled jute box in quotations and it turns out that it's more common than I thought. <laughs> I grew up actually thinking that it was a T. And admittedly, from time to time, I still pronounce it that way. You know, I, I guess it is easier to say, and it just kind of comes naturally. Like in the word butter, it's often pronounced with the D sound, like I just did, instead of butter with that T sound. Exactly. The misconception is common enough that Barry knows about it. So when he's online searching for jukeboxes that he wants, he tailors his searches. Yes, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, when when looking for jukeboxes, whether it be on uh, Craigslist, uh, whether it be just searching Google, uh, I, I spell it jukebox as two words. I spell it jukebox as one word. And I also call it jute box because a lot of people think that's the word. So it depends on right how it's, uh, uh, how it's advertised and however that word is spelled. So yes, I have. Yeah, I'm not sure what a jute is, but... Although jute may not be a word, juke has actually evolved over time. It came into use in the 1940s and originates from juke joints. The word juke, or jug as it began, is a gullah word, meaning disorderly, wicked, or rowdy. But the jukebox wasn't introduced in the 1940s, and it wasn't always called a jukebox. It was originally known quite literally as a coin-operated phonograph. Well, if you, if you look at history, I believe it was like in 1889 uh, in San Francisco, and it really wasn't more than just a, a little box with like stethoscopes coming out of it. And there was one song in there, and four people could simultaneously listen to this coin-operated, very primitive device. In the late 1920s, the jukebox as we know it today started to take shape. Electricity was an important factor, of course, but at the beginning of the 30s, the major companies behind the creation of jukeboxes also started to form. They're known as the Big Four. Uh, the major manufacturers of the jukebox are Seaberg, Rockola, Wurlitzer, and AMI in Grand Rapids. Uh, those are the Big Four. There were some smaller companies, but those are the Big Four. Each company had its own style, design, sound, and features, and they covered different pieces of the market. For the most part, Wurlitzer dominated the sales of the 1940s, Seberg did the same in the 50s, but prior to their success with jukeboxes, 
all of the big four companies were making other things. Wurlitzer created these huge pipe organs of the time for silent movie background sound. Seberg was a uh, manufacturer of something called an orchestrion that was like a large piano that had other instruments built in. Rockola was primarily known for scales before they got into the coin-operated industry. Even that fourth company initially made other things, but it's probably the closest related to the jukebox itself. AMI stands for Automatic Musical Instrument Company. Its main original production was exactly that, automatic player pianos and Nickelodeons. Jukebox became the common term for the machines in the 1940s, but it wasn't an easy sell for the companies that made them. Like George mentioned a minute ago, juke derived from that Gullah word, jug, which had those rowdy connotations. The companies didn't want their machines to be in any way associated with people that went to juke joints. And originally juke was kind of a term that the industry did not embrace. It just had kind of a negative connotation to it for a while until it just kind of became what it was and everybody referenced it as that, a jukebox. Although they couldn't do anything to change the popular nickname the machines were given, the negative connotation had no effect on their popularity. And because of that popularity, jukeboxes made one major contribution that led to the beginning of something that's still around today. Every jukebox has inside of it something called a popularity meter. So when an operator would go to change out the music, the operator could see which selection was being played the most. These popularity meters were a helpful tool for the operators when they went to work on the machines. Once a month, once a week, I'm not sure what, what the schedule was, but obviously they would go there to pull the money out of the coin box, divvy it up between the proprietor and the jukebox operator, and they would very quickly see, by looking at that popularity meter, uh, which song was getting the most play, and often would have to change the record because of the wear and tear on the song. You'd get cue burn, and the song would just no longer sound good on the jukebox. The same went for records that got little to no play. They'd replace it, but most likely with a different record altogether. But try to think of these popularity meters as the billboard charts of yesteryear. So radio industry relied very heavily on the jukebox industry for seeing what the public was asking for, what song was being played the most. So that influenced what we heard on the radio, the jukebox did. So, you know, they're, they're kind of intertwined. Jukeboxes may have also contributed to one of the most revolutionary ideas in radio. A guy named Todd Storrs was a radio station owner in the 1940s and 50s. And one evening, he was sitting in a bar, and a bunch of kids were dancing to the music on the jukebox. Someone would get up, put a coin in, and play a song. But he started to take notice when another kid would get up, drop in a coin, and play the same exact song. It kept happening. Kid, coin, song. Kid, coin, song. Kid, coin, song. Eventually, all of them left, and only the waitress remained. She walked up to the jukebox, and although he was convinced that she would pick a different song than the one she'd been hearing all night, she puts in a coin and picks the same exact song. He applied the way that people were using the jukebox to the programming of KWOH in Omaha 
in the early 1950s. He's often cited as the inventor of Top 40 Radio. That's the generally accepted origin story of Top 40 Radio, but like most mythology, that story could lie somewhere on the spectrum between truth and a memorable fabrication. Regardless, it's worth considering that we could indirectly thank the jukebox for the rise of nearly every major pop hit over a half a century. Uh, jukeboxes were, you know, very influential. Uh, but Cashbox was a publication that came out uh, that many, many radio stations relied on. Uh, and it simply was proceeds from the songs that were being played. And they would put a number to it and saying, boy, this is a hot record in the Midwest. This is a hot record back in the Northeast. And it might even be a regional song. Maybe it was from a local group. It wasn't always a, uh, you know, a well-known group. So, but yeah, definitely intertwined and, and big influence. By the mid-1960s, jukeboxes had undergone a series of changes. Some had space-age motifs, others started to hold up to 200 selections, but over time, they became standardized, more plain, and didn't have the same wow factor that they used to. Uh, No longer did you see or have curved glass or lighted plastics. Uh, They became more console-type models where you you could no longer see the record play. And I think that was one of the allures and magics of the machine, uh, was being able to see what was going on when you deposited that nickel or dime or quarter. And when that was taken away, even though the quality of the audio got better because uh, technology improved and we had stereo and we had solid state, and uh, that improved, but it wasn't really enough to save the jukebox industry. And then after that, of course, we had, uh, you know, other new technologies come in and it was really no longer the mode of entertainment at clubs or restaurants or bars or whatever. And that's why you can still find some around today and why Barry is collecting them. Barry calls his jukeboxes his babies. And if you asked him which of them he wouldn't sell, he'll give you the same answer each time. Yeah, you're looking at them. You're looking at them. I mean, that I, I get that question from time to time. Is there anything that you would sell? And right now, I, I just couldn't. I've got too much blood, sweat, and tears, and every one of them has a story as far as where they were found, what was involved in actually retrieving them and ultimately getting them to here. So uh, at some point, I'll have to cross that road. But that's not going to happen anytime soon. Barry's jukebox collection is a way of keeping our shared culture and past alive today. Sure, records are making a comeback, but jukeboxes probably never will. He doesn't care about that. His collection contains 20 reminders of how far we've come. Uh, you know, it's, it's a memory thing. It's, it's cherishing the early memories and um, wanting to relive the past. And I think one of the ways of doing that is you know, finding something that you remember when you were a young person and bringing that back into your space and and the memories that it it, uh, brings to one. I think that, you know, people are always looking for that. Barry's always looking for more jukeboxes to buy and sell. If you're ever interested in getting in touch with him, we've got his business card on our website, everythingsounds.org. And while we were in his basement, We took some pictures of his collection, and you can find those there as well. While you're there, you can also find links to us on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. 
feel free to connect with us on any of those sites. And when you share links or story ideas, sometimes we actually end up using them. Today's episode was sponsored by Sound Studio 4 by Feltip Inc. Sound Studio 4 for Mac lets you record audio, create podcasts, digitize tapes and records, and create your own sound effects for your own projects. Information on all of the features is at macsoundstudio.com or in the Mac App Store. Again, that's Sound Studio 4 for Mac. Also by Warby Parker, a new concept in eyewear with an objective to create classically crafted eyewear at revolutionary prices. Warby Parker has a try-on program that lets you try on five different frames to find the pair that works for you. Each pair is available exclusively through Everything Sounds Warby Parker page at warbyparker.com slash everything sounds starting at just $95. Everything Sounds is a part of the Mule Radio Syndicate, along with shows like Destination DIY, Audio Smut, and The Broad Experience. You can find the full lineup and details about how to sponsor our show or any of the others at muleradio.net. Thanks for listening to Everything Sounds. I'm Craig Shank. And I'm George Drake, Jr.